1: Hiya, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host, Ian Cook. Today we're talking about a really brilliant book, Sacred Modernity, Nature, Environment and the Post-Colonial Geographies of Sri Lankan Nationhood by Tariq Jazil. Tariq is at the Department of Geography at UCL, and the book is published by Liverpool University Press and is also available locally in Sri Lanka. The book is a call for us to rethink the supposedly secular spaces of modernity in Sri Lanka, and it does so through two different sites. The first site is Rahuna National Park, and the second site is Tropical Modernism Architecture. It really is a fascinating and intellectually stimulating book, and I can't recommend it enough. So without further ado, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Tariq Jizil to new books in South Asian studies. Hi Tariq, thanks a lot for coming on. Um, hello,
0: thank you for inviting me.
1: Oh very good. So I enjoyed the book very much, but before we get to talking about um, Sacred Maternity in depth, uh, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about your past projects, your past research, and how this fed into your latest book.
0: Um, Yeah, so I guess the book has been a long time in the making, actually, and it's um – It's fair to say that my interest in in, uh, the relationships between landscape, nature and the politics of ethnicity and difference in Sri Lanka goes right back actually to research I did um, when I was doing a a master's degree in cultural geography at um, at Royal Holloway University of London. And since then I've conducted various research projects on different kinds of landscape different kinds of spaces of nature and environment in the Sri Lankan context through which Sinhala Buddhist power and the politics of nationhood and identity are uh, instantiated and also contested. And that's really um, what the book is about. But it's, I guess it's also fair to say that it's the book is part of a, a, a broader, a bigger sort of preoccupation. I've had with the relationships between different kinds of spatialities and this very mutable and um, uh, multivalent uh, signifier, i.e. Sri Lankanness, which I have to say in turn comes from from growing up uh, as part of the Sri Lankan diaspora, as someone also of mixed Sri Lankan uh, parentage. My um, uh, mother is Tamil, my father is Muslim, uh, and therefore I, I think, you know, always struggled in some senses to get to grips with the different and contested um, levels, locations and the ways really through which identity has lived and negotiated in the Sri Lankan context. So, you know, the book is really part of that ongoing process to kind of work through some of those issues, I think.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great. And uh, so this 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 research, you started doing this research many years ago to, to, before this book or it was, uh, it was like
0: yeah the book uh, parts of it come actually from my doctoral research uh, and then there are a number of uh, uh, postdoctoral uh, research projects particularly on the architecture side of uh, things that have comprised uh, large parts of the book as well so it's in terms of actual research projects there's some of my um, my phd research in there a lot of the stuff on the uh, the national park uh Runa national park was conducted uh, around about the time when i did my phd and then a lot of the the second part of the book on tropical modern architecture was conducted in in years subsequently um but it's it's re- research that's been ongoing i would say over the last 10 years or so which is why i say the book's been a long time in the making
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah i mean i noticed in the book there was there was some interviews that were from I don't know two thousand six or seven or something like this. And then yeah. some more recent stuff as well. So you could really it was nice that you could really get this um, yeah this depth there of, of something you could tell it was something that had been researched over over a long period. So let's let's talk a bit about yeah. the the book itself. And before we talk about these 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 two sites, the the national park and tropical <coughs> organism architecture, let's um talk about the yeah a little bit the title so sacred modernity so it's uh yeah what do, what are you what are you trying to get at with this title
0: yeah good question um, mm-hmm. well i think i mean i wanted to use that phrase because of uh, something of the tension that it suggests tension between on the one hand the pre modern nature of religion of the sacred um and on the other hand um uh, the political modernity that we assume somehow must be secular, and really, I guess, in you know, in something of a nutshell, my my argument in the book is that Buddhism and its aesthetic and ethnic domain has been a central component of the political project of post-independent Sri Lankan nation building. So hence, sacred modernity, which I wanted to use um, as I say to denote a kind of commingling of religion and political modernity or a way of talking about um, an, an alternative modernity wherein the religious has its own trajectory of becoming modern, part of everyday life, that is. Mm-hmm. And part of the project of the, um, the, the of building the very modern political institution of the state. But, I mean, you've read the book, so you'll know that the book's not about political institutions as such. It's about the politics of everyday life, uh, space and landscape. Mm-hmm. But really, yeah, the sort of commingling, commingling of that... Um, uh, those assumptions about the pre-modernity of religion and uh, and the modernity of nation building, mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. and and to, and to do this in in the introduction, is it, I don't know if it's the introduction or the first chapter of the book. Yeah. You, you you interrogate these two concepts of nature and religion and a yeah. sort of binary idea that we have of them, uh, maybe in Western thought. I don't know how how does how does um, tackling this binary how does this help you understand what's going on in your two sites.
0: Yeah, so I, I think it's it's also part of my argument in the book that, uh, as you say, those very concepts, nature and religion are only partially able to make visible uh, the political contours of these uh, spatial formations that I address in the book. In other words, in order to see the politics and hegemonic power of Buddhist environmental or Uh, Or landscape formations, one needs to work against the binary implications of the words, of the concepts, um, nature and religion, excuse me, because um, I think, you know, respectively, they imply a nature culture binary and sacred secular binaries. Now, in a context where I'm arguing that there's a primacy to a a Buddhist metaphysics, if you like, or a Buddhist philosophy, Um, in instantiations of the the taken as given of the normal, these binaries simply don't translate. So, you know, there's an important post-colonial methodological point here, which is essentially that um, as, uh, well, as Emily Apt has put it recently in her wonderful book um, Against World Literature, that untranslatability is really important here. Mm -hmm. Untranslatability is precisely that device which allows us to see difference on terms true to the singularity of those differences um and more importantly i think you know to simply if i were to simply translate the buddhist environmental worldings that i'm interested in as something clunky like buddhist nature this i think would be to translate out of existence all the specificity and hence political power of those ethnicizing buddhist aesthetics um so i think that's really what i was trying to do with um with this kind of uh, attempt to work against or interrogate the concepts of nature and religion mm-hmm. to to work through their erasures in this context, if you like.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And 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 it's and it's really <coughs> nice the way you do this with this aesthetic orientation. This is how you're. This is yeah. how you're trying to understand this. I wonder if you tell us you use this concept a lot. This distribution of the sensible. You use yeah. this a lot in your book. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, who whose concept this is and how you use it?
0: Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, well. Uh, Obviously, it comes from Jacques Ranciere's work, but I think, um, I mean, I I started using the idea of of aesthetics in some senses because aesthetics was a way for me to think and work beyond these um, enlightenment binaries, the nature-culture binary, the sacred-secular binary, but, you know, I should... Also, emphasise that we need to be very wary because I don't, for one minute, want to imply there's anything unaesthetic about the nature culture or sacred secular binaries. You know, these are lived and felt as much as non-binary uh, worldings. And you know, there's a great literature in environmental philosophy. People like Arnold Berlant and um, Emily Brady who've written really uh, beautifully on this kind of um, argument. So, you know, for me, Rancière's notion of the aesthetic as a the uh, distribution of the sensible, the orchestration of the a priori world was really useful because it was very much what I was trying to bring into representation in the book. Um, and in a slightly different language, I guess this is the power of hegemony, the construction of a social order, or in a slightly different register again, what Raymond Williams was referring to, uh, referred to as structures of feeling. Um, and as I said, you know, this is very much what I was trying to delineate in the book in the context of environmental and spatial formations, um, but I guess also, you know, it's, it, 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 bringing this back to to thinking beyond these kind of binary, uh, these binaries, and particularly the sacred, secular binary, it, I should emphasize also that it's, you know, the, the way the state is able to flip between binary and non-binary renderings of religion really, uh, particularly really interested me, because it's precisely the ability, you know, the state's ability to say, to say religion has no proper place in our political institutions. Um, And it's this kind of statement that buttresses the state's claim to be secular and hence properly modern, Mm -hmm. when at the same time, as I was trying to show in the book, Buddhism as an ethnicising structure of feeling, a distribution of the sensible, is omnipresent through the kinds of spaces that I address in the book and and in many, many others.
1: Mm -hmm, mm And and I guess this is how (laughs) then you come to describe um, a sort of a Buddhist nationalist cosmopolitanism. Which is which is going on, right? This sort of tension between being very modern and being or, and cosmopolitan, and on, on one hand and, and quite nationalist at the same time. This is this is the how you get there, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely, and it it comes from uh, I guess the sort of more recent critique of the cosmopolitanism literature. Um, and the point really that I wanted to make by that formulation that um, uh, cosmopolitan singular Buddhist nationalism point i wanted to make here is that um it's a way i think for the for singular buddhist sovereignty to be able to say that yes it welcomes difference diversity multiculturalism so on and so forth but it does so on its own terms it is the sovereign entitled and able to tolerate non-singular otherness i.e tamils muslims burghers it draws the parameters for difference it produces difference if you like mm-hmm. um and this all sounds probably more complicated than it is actually but in many ways the book was a very simple exercise in trying to unearth just why it feels so natural um for so many people in sri lanka to say and claim that the country is buddhist and hence sinhala Mm -hmm. naturally and historically all the way back into time immemorial so to speak you know how does this narrative this um performative statement literally become naturalized woven into the environment and the landscape all around Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. and that's a that's a great segue into um looking at the book then looking at the the two sites more in depth because um it's exactly how you take some and so yeah before i before i say something maybe maybe you should tell us then a little bit about the your first site this uh Ruhuna, say? Ruhuna. Ruhuna, yeah, Ruhuna National Park yeah. so can you tell us a little bit about this park before we start to discuss yeah, your argument from it
0: yeah I mean in some senses it's the archetypal space of national nature space the state has carved out as something of a shop window for its nature yeah. and you know given my answer to some of your previous questions I'm using the word nature advisedly consciously here you know, it's, it's Sri Lanka's most famous national park arguably uh positioned located in the southeast of the country mm-hmm. uh, one that like many others um began its life as a game sanctuary in the early 20th century actually the very late uh last couple of years of the uh, 19th century in colonial salon and over the century has become a tourist attraction it's deeply it was deeply embedded in projects of nation building in the post-independence context as well (coughs) excuse me and i think what interests me is that yes it's a space of nature a space that the state carves out to reflect its national articulation of what sri lankan nature is and in this sense it's a space that very much articulates this kind of binary understanding of nature culture but it's post-colonial history has seen it become a space where the non-binary Buddhist aesthetics implied by the phrase "sacred modernity" are also very present through the experiential domains that one's encouraged um, to engage with in the park's landscape, uh, the flora and fauna, the poetics of park tourism, if you like, but also through the archaeological narratives that are inscribed into the park, narratives of historical Sinhala sovereignty in the face of Southern Indian Tamil invasion. You know, Rahuna was. Um, reputed to be a landscape where the deposed Sinhala hero king Dutta allegedly regrouped and prepared to retake his northern kingdom from the Tamil invader Elara. And this is, you know, all written in uh, some of Sri Lanka's uh, sacred historical texts uh, alleged to have happened some 2,300 years ago. So the national park's a space where these historical and aesthetic narratives are Reinscribed and reproduced through a number of mechanisms i talk about in
1: the book mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's a and it's a really nice <laughs> quote that you have um from um from a sign when you enter the park I was, I'll, I'll read it because i think it really sort of captures this um bringing together of this uh of, of yeah of nature and and, and religion and and de it bringing it together It says, um, and this is the start of, this is how you open the start of chapter three. It says, through these gates, you enter a protected area. The animals, birds, trees, the water, the breeze on your face, and every grain of sands are gifts that nature has passed on to you through your ancestors so that you may survive. These gifts are sacred and should be protected. Whisper a silent prayer as you pass through for the protection of wilderness around you and ensure that what you see and feel is passed on to the unborn generations to come come like wow you know <laughs> <laughs> Very moving. Yeah. that's what you see when you enter a national park it's it's, yeah. it's amazing yeah yeah mm-hmm. and so um, and actually and this this and in this chapter when you um, that, that you start with this quote you look at what you talk about a little bit here this this inscription you're looking at archaeology also um, historiography on the one hand but at the other time you're also describing the experience of being in the park you're you're even describing your own feelings of being in the park, so I was wondering how does this you know of often very much state led inscription and also the 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 feeling of being in the park how do these two inform each other in the in the production of space
0: yeah um so I guess My argument in the chapter is simply that there's a common domain of experience that visitors to the park are encouraged um, to participate in. And, you know, the portal inscription that you read out is a great example of that, the ways that you're encouraged to participate in this aesthetic terrain, if you like. Um, My argument is that this domain of experience is neither politically innocent nor is it incidental to the ways that the park has been Textualized, written, narrativized through its history. So I begin um, by in that chapter by focusing on the ways that post-independent state archaeology has played a huge role, actually, in, in inscribing that Dugaldarmony narr- historiographical narrative that I just mentioned within the park's landscapes. And this involved a lot of archival work, looking at the um, colonial office and then Foreign and Commonwealth Office administrative reports archaeological surveys and also Department of Wildlife Conservation reports from, I guess, around the 20s or 30s onwards. Um, And particularly in the context of archaeological work, you begin to see that from around the 30s or 40s onwards, you begin to see um, what I might refer to as the signalisation of archaeological work in the park, such that state archaeologists were beginning to write into the park's landscapes their own and dominant historiographical um, narratives, singular historiographical narratives, they were finding in the landscape evidence of mythical singular history uh, that was recorded in the sacred texts, uh, texts like the Mahavamsa in Sri Lanka, and they were restoring these um, these ruins accordingly. Thus, in in very material ways, I think building spatial manifestations of a particular type of historiography. Mm-hmm. And Buddhism becomes central to this history writing, but also key is the fact that Buddhism is indissociable from um, the singular ethnos, from singular ethnicisation. But at the same time, you have the development of um, national park tourism, which was very much part of the post-independent states program of populist nation building. That is, you know, ways of um, affording the people cheap and easy access to these national landscapes and you begin to also see in the wildlife magazines and journals of the time the promotion and writing i guess of a particular kind of park experience that as i argue overdetermines the park's meaning so in other words you know that there can be no doubt that these feelings of being one with the universe or the sacredness uh, which the park's portal inscription um, asks visitors to 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 experience there can be no doubt that these are feelings that are contextually located within the terrain of a singular Buddhist aesthetics of the sacred modernity that is the book 's title so it 's in these ways that I wanted the chapter to make that quite extensive archival research that I did to inform the ethnographic work that was more focused on how the park is commonly experienced. Um, I use my own experiences as a way into that, but I'm trying to sort of reference a much wider domain of experience, a uh, common experience, if you like.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, it's, and I, there's, there's a part exactly with your experience when you describe climbing up on a hill and really feeling what you're meant to feel in a way, right? Even you as a critical-minded you know researcher going there, you, you even can't, it's hard to escape the feeling.
0: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And yeah, in some senses, these are... Um, these are narrative devices in order to be able to bring home the argument. But, you know, you're absolutely right as well. It is hard to escape those kind of uh, feelings of being very moved, of of connecting with some kind of um, deep history that's written in a particular kind of way of being able to imagine yourself in um, a landscape Um, that's as it was, say, 2300 years ago or something, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. and this this um so ethnicization of space uh, and when you you move up, when you it takes on a new dimension in, in the <laughs> next chapter in chapter Four because you start to talk i guess a little bit more politically about how the state how the space uh, this national park was securitized in terms of a different type of tiger the, the the tamil tigers when they started to make entries into the into the national park
0: yeah absolutely and and you know this is another part to, a really important part to the park 's politics um which is simply that during the Civil War, particularly through the 90s and early 2000s, Ruhuna was um, known by many as as the Eastern Front for two reasons, really. One, because within its boundaries, it um, contained the southern border of the Tamil Tiger separatists' imagined homeland, Elam. Uh, And secondly, because in some of its denser jungles closer to the eastern edges of the park, there were... Encampments of uh, Tamil Tiger cadres. You know these were thick, dense uh, jungles where it was easy for uh, the LTTE to um, to set up camp uh, and evade uh, uh, government uh, the, the government of Sri Lanka of Sri Lanka army. And there were a few incidents in the late nineties, early two thousands, when tourists in circuit bungalows in the park were. Uh, kidnapped by the Tamil Tigers or where bungalows were burnt down, destroyed, etc. And what interested me here was, first, the ways that this was reported in the popular press at the time as the desecration of a particular kind of aesthetic, right? These were experiences of being in the jungle in particular kinds of ways, as I argued in the previous chapter, that sort of being at one with the universe, that these were experiences of being in the jungle that were being lost or were being placed under threat by the tigers and second what interested me were the ways that the popular press began to play with the the language of endemic species belonging in order to to decry the tamil tiger infiltration of the park so in other words everyone in sri lanka knows that the largest big cat in sri lanka is the leopard mm-hmm. and therefore the tiger has no place in the park so there was all these kinds of um, word games around uh, what what kind of big cat belonged in Sri Lanka's most famous national park. So, you know, I guess I wanted to show how my arguments about the politics of aesthetics in the park also played into some more obvious and straightforward observations about the politicization of nature and geography. And ultimately, not insignificantly, it was the army, um, the the government uh, of Sri Lanka army, that were able to finally declare Rahuna safe again for public consumption which is not insignificant because this was a, a space of nature that had to be militarized protected in order to uh, become available to
1: the right kind of citizenry again mm-hmm. and, but this was also a space which had um uh, which was a pilgrimage site for Tamils as well i'm correct right
0: that's correct yeah yeah so uh, there are there some well well known um pilgrimage routes through the park Mm-hmm. particularly to a, a spot called Katragama that many uh, tamils not just tamils but lots of tamils have been um doing for for years and years walking for years and years and um through through the civil war you get these incredibly um interesting sort of descriptions of the ways that the state wanted to to keep an eye on these Tamil pilgrims for fear that, that the LTT would be using these pilgrimage routes and Tamil pilgrims as a way of, uh, of 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 entering the park, of making it through to the south of Sri Lanka. So you have this real kind of s- surveillance of the pilgrimage routes and the pilgrims that comes out in many of the uh, government reports as well and the national press at the time. Mm-hmm, <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. That's great. It's really, it's really nice. And you do this in both, both parts of the book. How, how you move first from, I suppose, making the, I mean, another way around. You might think the more simple way to organize it would be to make these big political arguments and then go down to start to think about the the more difficult to make arguments surrounding um, the sort of the the, the unseen aesthetics but it's nice in, in both in both parts you start the other way around like building building the argument away from the most from the most difficult point and you do this like I said in the first part of the book which is about this which is about Urhuna National Park and in the second part of the book when you're talking about a specific type of architecture which is um tropical modernism and so I have a very simple first question which I'm sure lots of people will, will want to know as well like what, what is this style of architecture and, and who were its main uh and proponents
0: yeah um very different kind of space to to um, that which I addressed in the first part of the book, mm. the National Park, Sri Lanka's modernist architecture, um, pioneered really, I guess, by three um, quite famous architects in the Sri Lankan context, Minette de Silva, Geoffrey Barwa, and Valentine Gunasakra from around the late 40s, 1950s onwards. And these were, uh, they were Sri Lankan-born architects who went to, Uh, to study at London's Architectural Association Um, and they were massively influenced by international modernism and uh, critical regionalism, the emerging seed of this new thing called tropical modernism from the likes of uh, Maxwell Fry and Jane Drew at uh, the Architectural Association and essentially um, De Silva, Barwer, Valentine, Gunasekera were interested in the problematic I think of how to Translate architectural modernism into something that physically uh, worked in sri lanka 's tropical environment in sri lanka 's tropical um, uh, environmental context and you know to take this challenge on, they all developed their own styles, in other words it 's fair to say that their work was quite different from one another 's but arguably united by a kind of common desire to build space and spatial experience that Melded the outdoors and indoors to build fluid kinds of spatialities where the outside was brought in and vice versa creating what many architects these days refer to as uh, infinite or fluid kinds of spatiality where light air and circulate, uh, where light and air was able to circulate um, um, through uh, properties that they built through space that they built and their work I think has spawned something of a movement now of modern Sri Lankan architecture that continues to do this in all kinds of really interesting uh, and creative uh, ways so this attention to blending inside with outside has kind of I, I would argue become the hallmark of Sri Lankan architectural modernism in many senses
1: mm-hmm. and is I mean for example I know, it's, it's, I know it's, it's in a later chapter, but it's, it's a good example to explain this. There's a there's a hotel that you describe in some detail. I think it's built by Jeffrey I no? with with the yeah. where, where. So maybe you could just describe this a little bit for for us, so we can get an idea of what it is to be inside and outside at the same time.
0: Yeah, uh, this is the Kandalama Hotel in uh, uh, Sri Lanka's cultural triangle, um, and it's it's a it's a fantastic hotel it's a it's a big um, modernist structure that's built into a rock face so the structure kind of merges with um with the rock face it's uh rooms and hallways uh, are in part open to the environment beyond it's planted uh, with lots of um, uh, native vegetation such that now it's it can be difficult to actually at a distance it can be actually difficult to pick out the hotel because it seems to have merged um with the the uh, uh the planted rock face um and you really do get this sense you know moving through this hotel moving through its spaces that there is little by way of separation between uh, yourself as you're in these spaces and the environment beyond and there are all kinds of um, large features and small details that work to accentuate this kind of spatial experience the fact the, the idea that you're part of the environment beyond so for example um, there are infinity swimming pools that look out to the kundalama tank uh, lake uh, beyond reservoir beyond so when you such that when you're in one of these swimming pools if you're lucky enough to be in one of these swimming pools <laughs> um y- y- your view merges seamlessly with the landscape beyond so you're supposed to it's supposed to create this illusion that you're swimming in the in the tank uh, with the bathing elephant so on and so forth mm-hmm. so yeah there's a, a brief synopsis really of the hotel yeah
1: i have to say you choose your 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 field sites well like look yes. hotels and national parks right? yeah <laughs> so yeah. yeah i'm sure it was a, a very trying field site in this way um, it was <laughs> so um this, but it's nice you described the feeling because that's exactly what you you move on to talk about in the next chapter when you when you want you're making an argument about how built space has effects on people just as the same way that people affect meaning of built space so you, you're talking about the yeah the, the way in which these 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 tropical modernism buildings how how they really you know affect having effects on the people who live there and you, you do this through building on interviews with people who live there but also with architects and students and interns and uh, and this as well so what's the what's the argument you're trying to make here
0: um do, do you mean in terms of the methods
1: i chose or no I, I, yeah so in, um yeah yeah both really so like why what so why did you choose yes, both in the terms of the methods, but also in terms of what yeah, what 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 effect did it have on people, basically the people who lived there as well? Right, I see.
0: Um Yeah, I I think um so in terms of the I I, I did want to it was my own experience of some of these spaces that initially got me interested in in the aesthetic terrains or domains of experience that uh i saw something in but i think what was really important for me was to try to allow people to tell me about these spaces you know why were people commissioning these this kind of architecture for their own houses how were architects actually working with these spaces how were people using and negotiating these spaces in a uh, kind of everyday kind of way so um, so that's one, of, you know, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to to speak with people about these spaces rather than to just try and describe them. Mm-hmm. Um, and in many senses, I think it, it was really that that what came through strongly in a lot of the ethnographic work that I did was this feeling of um, infinite spatiality, the 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 feeling of of not quite knowing when you're inside or outside that was narrativized um in a particular kind of way that collect that connected in many instances with um hallmarks or or tenets of a, a Buddhist aesthetics uh, this this idea particularly this idea of infinite spatiality and again people would often struggle to describe this to me Uh, In my interviews that were conducted in English, not in a singular language, because they didn't have the words for these kinds of experiences. So these were untranslatable experiences in some ways. And that really kind of interested me, Um, because although these weren't political experiences, these weren't historiographical experiences like um, um, many that I wrote about in the first part of the book, they were experiences that people would often choose to narrate to me, in and through uh, uh, the register of this kind of sacred modernity that I, I've been trying to think about. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. And and um, yeah, I, again, I'm worried now. I'm making an unintelligible question, but I just wondered, So, how did you get to? Sp- how did you speak to these people? How did you get them to talk about this sort of untranslatable or even un? unthinking unthinking uh yeah experience how how did you how did you get into this mm-hmm.
0: lots of different ways really i mean um the i i chose to do a number of interviews with people who had commissioned um tropical modern architects to build them houses and i i, I went to their houses i asked them to to show me and describe their houses to me which was a fascinating experience and a lot was revealed in 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 those kinds of ethnographic encounters but then i also um i did a lot of work interviewing architects themselves which was which was fascinating um but also architectural interns as you just mentioned um who were uh, uh, deployed in to go and work on these kinds of properties so shadowing them really finding out you know what what it is they were doing when they were doing their drawings, when they were uh, uh, imagining how they would change a particular space uh, to suit a client's needs, so on and so forth. So it was really, you know, trying to get under the skin of this architectural complex, really, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, It was um, in some senses quite haphazard in many ways, but it was, it was, it was also in, in other senses, very revealing. But I have to also say, I mean, there's a lot of ethnographic work, but the other part of this work was also the textual and archival work. So this there's a big and indeed there's one chapter in, in one whole chapter in the book on the kind of the way the architecture is overdetermined by its textual field. There's a lot of writing about this architecture, you know, in coffee table books, style books, um in newspaper magazine supplements, uh, those kinds of things. Um so I really wanted to kind of get to grips with all this literature as well, mm-hmm. and to understand how the literature was pulling uh, the architecture in a particular kind of direction narratively as well. And, and the final part of all this, I guess, really is to not underemphasize the role that the state has played in locking the architecture into particular kinds of narratives as well, because Jeffrey Barwa. Um, Probably the most famous of uh, these early Sri Lankan tropical modernists in Sri Lanka um, was commissioned by the state to do a number of really important national projects, if you like, uh, through from around the 1960s onwards. So the Kundalama Hotel, which I, I just spoke about, was one of those projects. Um, and that was for a national tourism company closely aligned to the state. It was also commissioned to build uh, Sri Lanka's brand new parliament building, um, and also to build a, a, a brand new state university, again down in Rahuna. Now, these this was all at a time when the state uh, was was uh, the government was building a state in a way that closely aligned itself with a majoritarian Sinhala ethnos. So it was, a, it was a very much an exclusivist kind of state. Um, so the way that, that this style, tropical modern style got, uh, subsumed if you like by, uh, state narratives of what an emblematically Sri Lankan kind of architecture should be. And emblematically Sri Lankan meant Sinhala in many ways, Buddhist in many ways.
1: Yes, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. is this, um, yeah, exactly. This way that the yeah in, impossibility of artistic uh, autonomy, which is uh, which is exactly this is uh, how you can't how you can't escape the the yeah the context within which you're working. But as I I, w- I wanted to yeah I just I mean I'm I'm wondering maybe yeah m- maybe maybe they have maybe they haven't have have you sent this book or or some of the or some of or some writings to these architects that you did research with, and have they or or not.
0: Yeah, uh, I have, I have, yeah, uh-huh. um, and that's really important to me, and and it's yeah. it's a tricky one because you know what what, what I'm essentially doing is critically engaging uh, an architectural style that is s- in some senses so far away from politics uh, that it becomes a quite quite a difficult thing to do, and and you know many would also argue that what I'm doing effectively is ceding to singular nationalism, something that. That is, um, as I've just said, so far away from the political uh, that it's a, a, a tricky game to, to, to play, so to speak. But you know, let me be clear, I, often I think the architects themselves uh, would talk to me about being caught in a kind of trap here because the architecture has become so associated with this aesthetic formation that the architects can't easily escape it. You know, their clients want a typically Sri Lankan building one that affords spatial experiences that are legible in particular kinds of ways. And that I argue also re a Buddhist structure of feeling that's ethnicized by association. So as a consequence, um, you know, the market plays a role here in, in locking uh, uh, the architectural style and narrative uh, together. And architects, um, a few architects spoke to me about how they really wanted to innovate and try new stuff but they found it very difficult to because other, if they did they wouldn't get any work right um, <laughs> so um so yeah
1: yeah so yeah that, and uh, this is i, I suppose this ines, inescapability in a way is, is a is a good is a good time then to talk about um the sort of hopeful uh or hope, hopefulness that you suggest at the end of at the end of the last full chapter and it, it relates to the it relates to the wonderful front cover that you've got which is um yeah a, a, a pink um very soft looking uh bed like uh so, actually maybe you should describe it because then uh you know you know it's you know it's context as well rather than my poor description mm-hmm. so
0: yeah, yeah. It, I mean it's an installation by a fantastic Sri Lankan artist, Pam Shanathan, a Tamil artist who's based now at the University of Jaffna. And I don't will will there be a, a image of the cover of the book on the website?
1: Yes, yeah,
0: there will. Right. Okay, so so listeners will be able to to see this as well. Right. Um, so it's a it's an oversized, um, red. Very sumptuous, uh, velvety-looking uh, bed placed right in the middle of um, a field, which is in one of it was in Jeffrey Barrow's estate, uh, Lunagunga. and the the installation was made at an artist's retreat, as I said, in Jeffrey Barrow's old estate. Um, in other words, right in the middle of the kinds of landscapes that my book focuses upon, and indeed, in one of the chapters, um, I have a discussion of that that precise view that the bed is placed right in the middle of. And as I said, it's this wonderfully sumptuous, oversized, red velvet bed. But the thing about it, it, the installation is called Paradise. The thing about it is that it's made of military sandbags, Mm -hmm. the materials that the state uh, used to protect itself and its citizenry from the Tamil Tigers uh, during the war. Uh, it's really hard, it's really uncomfortable as soon as you go and touch it. So, you know, it's for me, it as this wonderful statement about how everything that's seductive and sumptuous and evocative uh, in Sri Lanka uh, has some underside to it. There's some other slightly more sinister, ethnicised and, and, and militarised sides uh, to these kinds of landscapes. You know, much like, as I said, with the... Um, um the skirmishes in rahuna national park for the 90s and 2000s it was the army who ended up securing the park and making it safe again for its public right so there's there's this uh, relationship between um the evocative sumptuous landscapes that i write about here and militarization that i think the the installation really nicely brings out and um yeah, I firmly believe that we should judge this book by its cover. <laughs> I can't take credit for the cover because it's the artist's work and it's a fantastic installation. I think.
1: <clears throat> yeah, and it's it's a uh, it's a it's a cover that you don't have explained to you until almost the end of the book as well. So it's, yeah. it's a good it's a good tease as well after after such a wonderful front cover. I I, I wondered um, right when when you decided to 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 make to to write this book did it originally start as this this project that would bring both the Rahuna National Park and tropical animism <coughs> architecture together or did you originally envisage them as separate projects i know you mentioned part of it was based on your phd research like the, the the architecture stuff so did you when you went to do the research in rahuna was this always thinking of bringing these two ideas together
0: um yes actually yeah i mean okay. but i, I think it, it could it could have um it, it, there could be any number of other sites i think of mm-hmm. of uh, nature and environment in sri lanka that one could work through because my argument is that these are in in two very different case studies in two very different sites mm-hmm. spaces if you like there's a common aesthetic domain at work a common you know distribution of the sensible um that has similar hallmarks and uh, similar refrains and registers that have a politics to them that orchestrate the social in particular kinds of ways. So one could choose, um, um, I think a number of different sites. And indeed, you know, when I conceived of the book, I, I did actually think initially that I would have a third case study in the book, which would, uh, which I'd imagine to be around, um, post tsunami coastscapes uh, in the uh-huh. South of Sri Lanka. And the way that, um, sinhala buddhism had uh, shaped reconstruction efforts the way the disaster itself had been narrativized, so on and so forth but that it's not that that couldn't be done but it became a bit unwieldy in terms of um actually um uh, actually executing the project or executing the book so i i had to i had to leave that one be um but i have a wonderful phd student um now uh, will wright who's doing a, a project on uh, Post tsunami
1: coastscapes in the east of Sri Lanka, so it's not that that has died. <laughs> so to speak, it's <laughs> that's, that's great. It's great. No, it's it's, an, it's amazing. When I mean, when when I first when I first like saw the the blurb for the book, I was really thinking, so how, yeah, how how will you bring these two things together? But of course, this is exactly what what you reveal in the introduction, but also by the time you get to the end, is that this is something which could actually be done anywhere, right? These these two sites yeah. that you chose, but it could be. It, this is so all, per, all pervasive around in Sri Lankan society, or even you can imagine in other you can in, in other contexts it, where there's where there's cert, where there's you know a majority and a minority um, um, living together. You could really imagine extending this, this this framework into different places as well. So it's really it's, it's it, it works really well in that way. It's, it's really nice. So I just thought like we've talked. I've gone through all the chapters. I've asked all my questions, which were. Maybe a little bit unintelligible at times, but I was wondering if there's anything that I've missed that you'd like to flag up for the listeners?
0: No, I, I mean, I, I, one thing that it's, it's I guess, important to say, and it, 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 I should have mentioned it in relation to your question about have I um, have I sent copies of this book to the architects that I worked with in Sri Lanka, but it was really important for me um, that this book became available to a Sri Lankan readership i.e. Sri Lanka based readership so um, Liverpool University Press were were excellent insofar as they allowed me to seek a a co-publication agreement with a Sri Lankan publisher so the book is available um, on the Sri Lankan market through the Social Scientists Association as well so that was really important to me to be able to open it up to a uh, a territory of critical readers
1: in, in Sri Lanka as well. Oh, that's great. That's that's really good because, of course, everyone knows academic books are crazily priced in yes. the West. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. Let 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 alone when you yeah when you're in, in South Asia. That's wonderful. And is it um and, and have you had any? I mean, has there been any? What's the feedback been like from yeah. from these architects?
0: It's been. Um, really i haven't i've spoken so i did a round table on the book in uh colombo mm-hmm. um that was last april or march or so and it was great actually it was a real it was a real really fantastic level of critical engagement with the book with the main arguments i mean not just from from people working in or close to uh, architect tropical modern architecture in Sri Lanka, but critical social scientists and humanities scholars there as well, uh, and students as well using some of the ideas in the book to be able to generate their own uh, projects on the politics of space in Sri Lanka. So that was really really gratifying and and uh, experience through which I learnt a hell of a lot actually. So it was really good.
1: Okay, great, and um, the traditional last question on the new book podcast is to ask you what what's your current projects or future projects that you're working on now
0: uh current projects and future projects well i mean i'm the work on sri lanka continues and i'm at the very early stages of trying to develop a new project again on aesthetic constitutions of the political in sri lanka but i want to engage a bit more directly with with modern art in sri lanka uh contemporary art in sri lanka and there's a there's a sort of burgeoning art scene in Sri Lanka since um the end of the war so i'm interested in in the ways that artists have dealt with the conflict um and also the the role that the now that the market is is slowly but surely hitting uh the the sri lankan art scene um the what what's happening to the politics of this art in the context of commodification so on and so forth uh so that's a project that i'm at the very early stages of, of of getting going and um also in terms of the work on architecture that i um focus on in the book i've i i kind of extended that a little bit to think about other south asian iterations of international modernism or architectural modernism and i'd been doing some work on Oroville in um southern india mm-hmm. a utopian um, settlement in Tamil Nadu, actually, and thinking about the role that modernist architecture has played there in community building and the politics of utopian urbanism so on and so forth um, and those are you know two two projects that i 'm working on sort of in parallel at the moment, but there 's also a lot of thinking work i guess that addresses the postcolonial methodological problematics that the book uh, tackles around the relationships for example between subordinate studies and geographical thought uh, for example that i'm continuing continuing to work on as well the politics of knowledge production so on and so forth
1: Brilliant. They all all sound really fascinating. I suppose I just, I said it was my last question, but I should have probably asked this question in the beginning. Do do you have an architectural background, a training, or you always were a geographer? No,
0: no architectural training or background, which is both a a blessing and a curse in many ways, I think, Mm -hmm. because I I think what's, um, I mean, in many ways I had, I really, when I do this research and when I continue to do this research, I really have to be educated about, Architecture and the way that architects think and work, so on and so forth. But in many senses, um, you know, following um, the fantastic work of people like uh, Jane Jacobs, uh, Stephen Cairns and so on and so forth, I, I've really been influenced by you know that I, that importance of decentering the architect uh, when one looks at the geographies of architecture to think about um, the architect as only one one node in, in the ways that buildings work, right? So this is really, I guess, an engagement with built space and architects build things, yes, but then they're used and they continue to be used and remade by the people who use those spaces. So it's been um, difficult to work on architecture when one doesn't have an architectural background. Mm-hmm. But it's also been really useful, I think, in terms of thinking about architecture as part of a, a wider uh, uh, a wider network if you like
1: sure sure but so really again um thanks a lot um for for coming on uh, the podcast i really strongly recommend the book to everybody it really is a really is a wonderful book and um yeah thanks thanks a lot for coming on the show
0: thank you very much for having me it's been a real pleasure uh to talk about the book and uh um, thank you
1: Thanks again for downloading the New Books in South Asian Studies podcast. I've been your host, Ian Cook. We've been talking about Sacred Modernity by Tariq Jazil. I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope you download the book. And I hope to see you again next time. Ta-ra.